This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 148, Eternity. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. In some ways, this week's installment is a follow-up to last week's. We discussed the concept of big last week, and there's nothing bigger than eternity. This week, we will discuss the secret to life, according to the wisest man to ever live, how Native American philosophy, as narrated by James Missioner, strangely mirrors the Bible, how you can be resurrected and not go to heaven, at least not according to one composer, and a game from my childhood that reminds me why I play. Let's start with what I've been preaching. The first time in the Bible that the word eternity occurs, at least in the New American Standard Bible, is in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, which reads, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I find that fascinating, that the concept of eternity is more or less introduced, you might say, in the middle of a context, both small and large, that deals with how to live in this life. That's what Ecclesiastes is. It's finding purpose, finding meaning in this life. And I find it fascinating the way that Solomon pursues this idea and comes to the great conclusion, of course, in chapter 12, verse 13, that fear God and keep his commandments, this is what it's all about. Don't want to spoil the ending for anybody, but you probably know that verse as well as I do. Solomon is essentially saying here that a pursuit of eternal things and a pursuit of the best life you can live here on earth are much more parallel than we have been led to believe. We are told by our secular culture that this life is all about going for the gusto and seizing the day and living like you're dying and things of that nature. And we as people of faith, allegedly people of faith, oftentimes buy into this idea and either succumb to that thinking and go that route, trying to live like we're dying, etc., or else we bemoan our miserable existence that we are not able to seize the day. We are not allowed to go for the gusto, but that's okay. God's going to make it up for us in heaven, something along those lines. And Solomon says very much the opposite. Solomon says that this life is all about finding your lane. This life is all about finding success and contentment and joy where you happen to be. And that's where the the times comes in. Backing up to verse number one of chapter three, Solomon writes, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up is lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace, going through verse 8. You may know the old adage, a place for everything and everything in its place. Well, you take out the word place and put in the word time, and that's essentially Solomon's philosophy of life. Every one of these elements that we look at here in the first few verses of Ecclesiastes can be used to enhance your life tremendously, and every one of these elements can be used to destroy your life. 
knowing how to approach such things, knowing what their proper place is, knowing how much of our time, how much of our energy, how much of our emotion should be devoted to these things at any given moment in our life, that's how we milk this life for all that it is worth. That's how we derive satisfaction and contentment and joy while we're living here. But all of this is in the context of eternity. And Solomon doesn't make a big deal about this here in Ecclesiastes in general, but he does touch on it from time to time. And he especially touches on it here. Pick up the reading, verse 9. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has set everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not be able to find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I've tried for 55 years to get to the essence of what Solomon is trying to say here, and I think it's pretty close to this, that God has blessed us with any number of things, opportunities, blessings, challenges, etc., all having their role in making this life all that it ought to be. But he has also given us a sense of futility, a sense of emptiness that cannot be filled with giving birth and dying and planting and uprooting what is planted and killing and healing and all of these other things. It can only be filled by eternal things. And we may not have a full grasp on what that is. In fact, we can't have a full grasp on what that is because we are not eternal beings, not in the flesh at least. But we have a sense of eternity. We have a sense of discomfort knowing that whatever satisfaction we might find in this life, it is not going to ultimately get us to where we want to go. And that makes us reach for something higher, something bigger, something beyond ourselves. Essentially, it makes us search for faith. It makes us search for eternal things. Again, go back to chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. If we properly manage our approach to eternity, if we see the bigger picture, if we see the broad concept of God and his things in eternity, at least in some fashion, it frees us up to appreciate this life for what it is. We don't have to find eternal purpose in this life because we can find it elsewhere. We can find it in God. We can find it in heaven. And so the next major purchase or the next child or the next whatever it happens to be that we are searching for in this life, that doesn't have to hold the key to life because God holds the key to life. It's unseen, and that's frustrating for us. That's a challenge for us, certainly. But again, faith is that substance of the thing that we hope for. It's the evidence of things that are not seen, paraphrasing Hebrews 11, verse 1. By holding on to faith, we can hold on to eternity, as God has defined and designed eternity. And with that in mind, we can then turn to our everyday life and find joy there, find contentment there, find purpose there because we're not trying to imbue it with any kind of meaning that it was never intended to have in the first place. So we approach living and dying and illness and health and prosperity and adversity and all these things that pertain to this life, and we put them in their place. We put them in their time. We're able to do that because God has handled eternity for us. This is what I've been reading. 
I was first introduced to James Mishner's epic novel, Centennial, by way of the miniseries back in my childhood. My parents loved it. I loved it. It was this incredible, epic, sweeping saga of what I thought was a family at the time. But Centennial is not a story about a family. Centennial is a story about the land, about this particular piece of the South Platte River in what we would call today Colorado, and what happened around this land century after century, going all the way back to the first beavers that moved into the area and built their lodge there and redirected the river and in so doing changed the kind of flora and fauna that would appear there. And in so doing also emptied out a little pocket in the river, creating a cave of sorts where this soft yellow mineral that had floated down centuries before from the mountains found its way up to the surface and ultimately is found by an Arapaho brave named Lame Beaver. And ultimately, the story gets out, there's gold in our plains, as it were. And people come and eventually build a town here that ultimately gets to be named Centennial. And in this town, a man who values material possessions more than Lame Beaver did kills another man, and his body is buried in this same beaver cave that had existed centuries before. Human beings come and go. Animals come and go. The buffalo dominate. The buffalo leave. Towns are built. Towns are abandoned. The externals change, human involvement changes, but the land remains the same. As Lane Beaver's father, Grey Wolf, told him when he was a child, only the rocks live forever. Now, I don't know how deliberately James Missioner borrowed his philosophy from the Bible, but this saying sounds very much like what Solomon told us centuries ago. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting verse 3, "'What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun?' A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow there, they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, so there is nothing new under the sun. The point is not that this physical world, the physical realm that we dwell in, will literally last forever. It's comparing the lives, if you will, of the rocks with the lives of human beings. We come and go. And our impact on the world that is around us, whether the impact is physical or conceptual or political, ultimately it's not nearly as profound as we like to think it is sometimes. The fundamental nature of the world that we live in remains the same. And human beings living in the world remain the same. And so therefore the Bible approaches life here on earth at a very basic level. Developing relationships, for instance. Matthew chapter 12, verses 37 through 40, Jesus tells us the two great commandments are love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Those relationships are the real things of life. That's what really sustains you. That's what qualifies a day or a week or a year or a lifetime as being satisfying. We need to be acting with integrity, be the kind of people that we ought to be. These things don't change, do they? They don't alter from generation to generation. We don't have a society come up and say, well, it's not important for us to tell the truth. It's not important for us to stand for what is right, what is moral. And if a society does come up like that, word to the wise, that society doesn't last for very long. Treat others the way you would be treated, Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 31. 
And as Solomon says here in Ecclesiastes, find the joy that you can find in this life. Chapter 5, verse 18 reads, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life, because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. You get so caught up in your satisfaction, your contentment that you have found in this life, that you don't notice the passing of years. You don't notice your ranking, if you will, among the people of the world. And you certainly don't dismiss the importance of your life because it's not big enough, or it's not rich enough, or it's not satisfying enough. We find contentment where we are. We find joy where we are. This is what I've been hearing. Before I get into yet another segment on this podcast about what is accommodatively called classical music, let me set a couple of things straight. I am not preaching the gospel of orchestral music, symphonic music. You listen to what you want to listen to. I would suggest that you'll probably lose fewer brain cells listening to Gustav Mahler than listening to whatever might be on the radio these days. But, you know, hey, you do you. The reason that I'm drawn to orchestral music, symphonic music, is because, well, it's the same reason I'm drawn to art. There is beauty there. There is power there. There is oftentimes a specific meaning there. And I'm not a student. I am not good at this kind of thing. I don't necessarily understand the message. But I can love art for art's sake. I can love music for music's sake. And if I am compelled to, as I am in the case of Gustav Mahler's Second Symphony, to look for a deeper meaning behind it, I can find some purpose in that. I'm drawn to the Second Symphony because it is known as the Resurrection. And so when I heard that there was a Resurrection Symphony, well, I'm going to have to investigate that some. Now, I really struggle with the message behind the music. So when there are lyrics attached to the music, that helps me a lot. Doesn't necessarily get me all the way because I don't understand choral music that's sung very well. And I especially don't understand choral music when it's sung in German. So I went back and did some research and a rough translation into English of part of the chorus here in the epic conclusion of the symphony goes something like this. Oh, believe my heart. Oh, believe nothing is lost to you. Yours, yes, yours is what you desired. Yours, what you have loved, what you have fought for. Oh, believe you were not born for nothing, have not lived for nothing, nor suffered. What was created must perish. What perished, rise again. Cease from trembling. Prepare yourself to live. O pain, you piercer of all things, from you I have been rested. O death, you conqueror of all things, now you are conquered. With wings which I have won for myself, in love's fierce striving, I shall soar upwards to the light which no eye has penetrated. I shall die in order to live. That may sound a little bit like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you are acquainted with the message of Paul with regard to our resurrection, our bodily resurrection, as he describes there. But there's ample reason to believe that's not really what Mahler was going for. Mahler was raised as a Jew and eventually converted, for what appears to be business reasons, to Catholicism. 
and seems to have identified very much with the philosophy of Nietzsche and other modernists toward the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. A philosophy that was trying to move from a religion-oriented society to a science and intellect-centered society. Religion has served a purpose in culture, helping us to develop morals and basic grounding and ways to deal with one another, but we've moved past that, the philosophy goes. Now we can find new ways to find those same kind of principles that build that same kind of society on something that's true, something that's real, something that is substantial. And Mahler seems to be saying that that is what is going on with art and with music, that we are leaving an old world behind and we're embarking onto a new world. We're being resurrected. And there are things that are of value that we're leaving behind, but the things that we are embarking upon are much greater. And so there's a celebration here, giving up the old things, Beethoven and Mozart, old school music, and embarking onto this new adventure in this new world that we're entering into. You might have noticed a line in this translation that lends itself to that kind of philosophy with wings, which I have won for myself in love's fierce striving. I shall soar upward. This is the victory of mankind over the things of this life, over this world. There's ample opportunity to give God the credit for this, but God doesn't get the credit. Mankind gets the credit. It does come across sounding somewhat humanistic. We as Christians strive for something greater than that. We don't want to simply be resurrected to a better version of what we already were. We want to be different. We want to be transformed. And there's a sense, of course, in which we do find a resurrection in this life. Romans chapter 6 talks about that. We're born this new man, risen up to walk in newness of life. We are resurrected in the flesh. But that is only a precursor to the greater resurrection that is coming. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 actually says this. Now, I say this, brethren, starting verse 50, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery which shall not all sleep, but we all be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortality, Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That's the resurrection that we are searching for. And we will not be satisfied with anything less than that. Dwelling on a simple, political, artistic resurrection in the flesh shows a lack of vision. It shows a lack of faith, a belief that we can escape the difficulties of this life entirely instead of striving for a better way to deal with poverty or a better way to deal with hunger or illness or anything like that. We are striving for an existence that transcends all of these things. This is a spiritual resurrection that cannot be duplicated, that cannot be equaled in the flesh. I'm not suggesting we don't try. I'm not suggesting we don't strive toward a better world in this life. But we get our hope. We get our encouragement from the confidence that we will be resurrected. A real resurrection is coming for us. Not with wings that we win for ourselves, but wings that are given to us by God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 talks about how we will mount up with wings like eagles. And that's talking primarily about our victories here in this life. But if we can be given strength and victory and ascension in the flesh, how much more so will we be given that in the resurrection? That's what we're striving for. That's the resurrection that we truly want. That's how we are going to die in order to live. 
This is what I've been playing. Some board games feature in their instructions the rules for a short version of the game and a long version of the game. That's always confused me a bit. If I'm playing a game that I like, why wouldn't I want to play the long version? This is a philosophy that has characterized my game playing since my childhood, particularly since I learned a game called The Game of Life. The Game of Life was actually invented in 1860 by Mr. Milton Bradley himself. I had no idea it was that old. The Centennial Edition that came out in 1960 popularized the game, and it just spread all over America, and most suburban families like mine had a copy of it, and my brother and I played this game constantly. If you're not aware of how the game works, basically it's this. It's designed to be a depiction of your entire life. You begin by choosing a career path. Maybe you'll go into business directly or maybe you'll go to college. And then you embark upon your life and you stop every once in a while and get paydays for whatever it is that you're getting paid for. You get married, you have children, you have ups and downs, mostly ups. And you make your way around this board that has Not a regular circular path, if you will, and not a board that has a serpentine path. It just kind of winds back and forth. This path crosses itself any number of times. It's like a a wad of spaghetti almost. And to help you along, in case you're a little confused when you come to an intersection, there are little triangles on the map where you go straight instead of turning off uh, to the left or turning off to the right. Well, the way Hal and Paul Hammonds looked at it was this. If we take a right turn here or a left turn, depending on where you are on the board, instead of going straight, we can take another half a lap around the board and put off the end of the game. And so before too long, we're stacking children in the back of the car like cordwood. There's room for four children in the car. You will have seven or eight children. We'll make all kinds of money and we'll just be absolutely filthy rich. And then for whatever reason, maybe we're being called to dinner or have to go cut the grass or something. We'll finally bring the game to a conclusion and head off to Millionaire Acres to retire. And that's the end of the game. As an adult, I realized, and I realized back then too, I just didn't care. That's not the purpose of the game. You play so that it can be finished and so it can be brought to a conclusion and a winner can be determined. And without trying to sound too cynical or morbid about it, that's what life is. The actual game of life. The whole reason for living is to get to the end. You're preparing for an inevitable conclusion to the matter that cannot be put off. We want to keep the game going. We want to spin around and around and around, picking up as much stuff and putting it in our car as we possibly can. Giving no thought to making that final turn for home as it were. But what are we doing in the game in the first place if that's it? Doesn't it seem like a waste of time if we're just sitting here playing and playing and playing just so that we can keep playing and playing and playing? This is an exercise that was always intended to come to a conclusion. And when we're playing the real game of life, we need to be playing in that way, realizing that we are heading toward a goal, toward a destination. We don't have to be morbid about it. We don't have to be cruel about it. And I'm not suggesting we should hasten the day either necessarily. But Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 16 that there is a day coming when according to my gospel, he says, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. That day is coming. And we do ourselves no favors by pretending like it's obscure and 
indefinite, and we don't really have to worry about that on an ongoing basis. This should give us a sense of purpose, a sense of direction in this life as we are pointing toward the conclusion of all these things. And of course, when we do this as people of faith, it's not just simply the end of our physical life. It's the beginning of a new life, a better life, like we were discussing in the previous segment. Jesus says in John 11, verse 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks, do you believe this? And that's the question for us also, just like it was for Martha. Do we believe that we will never die if we play this game, if we live this life according to his rules for his purposes, always pointing toward this judgment that's waiting for us after this life is over? This life was never intended to be anything other than a place where we go to live and ultimately to die. We can be satisfied with that. We can be even happy with that. Paul writes in Philippians 1, verse 21 and following, For to me, to live is Christ and die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul is saying here that it's better to bring this to a conclusion. I'm living this life not so that I can have a great life and as much of it as I possibly can have. He's moving on toward greater things, deeper things, eternal things. And I think that's at least partly what Jesus means in John 10, verse 10, where he says that he came to give life to his sheep and that they might have life abundantly, not just a bigger, better life here on earth, not just packing our car with all kinds of stuff, but realizing the real reason why we're here in the first place, to find contentment and joy and purpose and meaning while we're wandering through the wilderness, as it were. And even more than that, the abundant, the exceedingly abundant life that's waiting for us after this life is over. It's a mistake for us to just assume that the whole point of living is to keep on living. That's not why we're here. That's not what God wants for us. We're here so that we can show ourselves to be God's people and to put our faith in greater things than ourselves, to put our faith in a resolution to things and move on to something better that God has in mind for us. And it's going to be a whole lot better than Millionaire Acres. I guarantee you that. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.